I want to talk this week uh, a little bit how, about how we as a church think about, about mental health, as in us as a community. So rather than thinking directly about a particular area of our mental health, I wanted to think more about, about what it's like to be part of community as part of that journey. Uh, you know, we, we've done sort of four seasons uh, of this series now, and we, we've talked in various different places, but I feel like there's still unfinished work to do in terms of how do we as a community engage with each other as we journey through challenges of our own mental health, uh, whether it's our disorders or just our feeling of overwhelm or whatever it is that we are experiencing in. It struck me as I was reading uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, uh, his first letter, he, he writes about the church uh, and he talks about the church as if the church is a family. And then he also leans into this metaphor of the body where Paul sees the Christian community as, 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 as this kind of this kind of being, this complex interconnected series of parts that make up the whole. And at one point during this conversation in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul then talks about the body this way. He says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Now, most of us know this. This isn't a great revelation for us when it comes to a conversation about the body. You know, I broke my little toe once and um, I kind of thought I'd get more empathy from, from you out of that, but I was, it was, just to put it in perspective, it was the night before I flew over here, I was running upstairs to get a baggage tag from my luggage, and I kicked the bottom of the stairs, and I put all of my, and, I, and I'm British, so I play a lot of soccer, so my kick's impressive, and... And I put all of that weight through my little toe and it gave way. Uh, and then the next day I'm on a plane and this tiny little part of my body was really taking over everything. It was my primary concern. You've had that sort of experience, haven't you? We're like, how can such a small thing cause so much pain? But it's interesting that when Paul brings this up, of course, he's not just simply talking about bodies. Like we all know this, you hurt a little bit of yourself, everything hurts. But he's using this to talk about the church. That he therefore, instead of talking about the body, he says this of the church, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Suffering is something that unites us. It brings us together. Paul here, he talks about suffering, he does something fascinating, because he validates it. He says suffering is, is a thing, it's a real thing, it's an actual thing. And rather than doing what we often do with suffering, which is to isolate it, Paul integrates it. So what we often do is we say, oh, I'm feeling pain at the minute or I'm feeling sort of a bit of overwhelm or if depression or anxiety is, is, is raising its head. What we do is we often push ourselves into isolation. We, we want ourselves to be alone or worse than that sometimes, our community does that. They kind of push us away and keep us at arm's length. But Paul instructs something different. He says, actually our suffering integrates us into the body. It brings us together and our suffering becomes somehow cohesive. We're in this together. In another letter to the church in Galatia, Paul says in chapter six and verse three, he says that you should bear each other's burdens, that somehow what we carry as Christian community, we should carry together. But I wonder, and maybe, maybe this is just me, but I kind of feel you might journey this with me a little bit. I wonder if that's always been our experience of church. I wonder if we would honestly say that our experience of church, particularly when it comes to the area of mental health, maybe hasn't been one where our suffering is sort of validated and, and, and welcomed into the community, but rather instead of integrating us, we can feel quite 
isolated. In fact, Jane Kenyon wrote a poem called Having It Out With Melancholy. And in the middle of the poem, she explores this moment where she meets a friend in church. She simply says it like this, and there's a suggestion from a friend. You wouldn't be so depressed if you really believed in God. That's helpful. But I think you'd find that more than a few of us have encountered this sort of experience, where somehow our process of being vulnerable about our mental health, our unpacking of the journey we're on, is responded to with a question about our faith. In fact, if you struggle with your mental health, it's almost a truism that somebody in a church setting will have said something to you that made it worse. I don't like to have to say that, but that's been my experience. And I'm in a little bit of a debate with a few friends as to whether my experience as a pastor makes my conversations worse or better in church. And I don't know the answer about this. One argument is that maybe as a pastor, people are a little less careful around me, so they say what they really think. But then the other argument is maybe as a pastor, people are putting on their best behavior and, uh, and this is like the best side of what they think. And I don't know the answer to that. Here's what strikes me is that if people are talking to me like this about my mental health, I'm worried about how we're talking to each other. I'm worried about what we're saying to each other if we're vulnerable enough to share and say, hey, this is what I'm going through. What sort of experiences are we getting in response? See, because those sort of conversations can be hugely destabilizing. The conversation that Kenyon recounts in her poem can be really difficult if you're struggling with your mental health. I have a couple or two, actually I've got three degrees in the Bible, right? And, and that so therefore gives me some familiarity with it. I hope by now after three years you've picked up on that. Uh, I've read bits of it a few times. And, <laughs> and that gives me a sense of rootedness that when somebody comes to me and says, hey, you know what, I, I heard you talk about your mental health, but really, you know, as a Christian, you shouldn't struggle with your mental health. That's actual conversation I've had with someone. Um, they, they said, you shouldn't actually struggle with your mental health because, because that's not, Christians shouldn't struggle with that. Now, I have a sufficient biblical rootedness to go, do you know what, really that's not true, right? That's not actually based in any biblical truth. Uh, but I got three degrees behind me that give me that sort of sense of confidence and experience. And as a pastor, I worry that what if you're relatively new to this community and somebody that appears to have some experience, somebody that appears to know what they're on about, they seem to be citing Bible verses, and they say something like, well, you wouldn't be so depressed if you really believed in God. Like the weight of that could be crushing. Like can all of us in this room right here mount a defense theologically against an idea like that? And therefore, this church become an unsafe place to be vulnerable about your mental health. Like in this series, we've looked at this book called Lamentations in the Old Testament, a book wherein the author is just kind of pouring out their heart to God. In the midst of them pouring out their pain and their suffering and their, and their torment, we also notice that God is, is completely silent. And God doesn't say anything in it. And that kind of really stresses some of us out. Like again, you've probably noticed about me, I'm a talker. Because that was a little too much laughter. 
<laughs> I love to talk. I love being in conversation with people. I love the bounce back and forward. I love to read the emotions on a person's face. I like to experience. I just love being in conversation. And if somebody stops talking, if you've been in one of those situations, somebody just stops talking to you and you're talking and now they're not giving you any feedback. They're not saying, uh-huh. They're not nodding their head. They're, they're just blank. And it's like terrifying for people like me. Like it's like the extrovert's idea of hell. And, uh, and, and, and so, so like this sort of thing can be, can be really scary. So when I read something like Lamentations, like why is God not saying anything? Why, why is God not speaking in this situation? But what kind of speech am I looking for from God? Often what I think I want is I want God to speak and say, hey, don't worry about that anymore. Or hey, I've got that under control. Or hey, watch me fix it. That's really what I want. I want God to say, hey, watch this. I'm gonna make all of this go away. But instead in Lamentations, we get silence. God lets the author pour out their heart and their deepest thoughts and he doesn't say anything. But it struck me on reflection that actually this is what we want. Because instead of God speaking and correcting, instead of God speaking and solving, instead of God speaking and fixing, instead what we realize is that the feelings of this writer are valid. And they're valid because they're there and they're poured out in all of their vulnerability, in all of their rawness, in all of their honesty, and they're in the Bible which is a kind of way of saying, it's okay if you feel like this and feeling like this deserves the space that it gets. And so often we struggle with that as Christians because we want everything fixed. We want everything put back together. And this is because I think our idea of what normal is like, our idea of what it should look like just to be a day-to-day -day generic Christian is far outside of God's reality. It's some sort of idea that we have that what every day should be like. And then the problem is every day doesn't turn out like that. Life has its troubles and life has its issues and some of them come to us in our mind and we therefore feel kind of lost because we're not sure what to do about it. I have some thoughts on this that suggest that the reason we do that, the reason we react badly to our mental health, the reason actually we react badly to any challenges in our health, or anything that brings us suffering, is it's because for many of us, we're rooted in a particular theological perspective, the sort of theological perspective that brings out the ideas that Jane Kenyon talks about in her poem. And we're gonna frame these with an idea that Martin Luther, the great uh, Christian reformer from the 16th century, he used a particular phrase that I think describes modern theology, modern Christianity, particularly those that have come from kind of evangelical and charismatic backgrounds, we often find ourselves in what would be known as theologies of glory. Always good as a theologian if you almost mispronounce theology. You caught that there, theologies. That's a word I just made up right now. It doesn't exist in any of the dictionaries. Um, theologies of glory. Theologies of glory are approaches to Christianity and to life in general that try in various ways to minimize difficult and painful things or else to defeat them and move past them rather than looking them in the face and accepting that this is somehow how life is. So what happens is we get ourselves into these sort of ideas that we, we know what we think life is supposed to be like, and it's supposed to be great because we're Christians, and everything's supposed to be great for us as Christians. In fact, God just has all of this great stuff for us, and he just wants us to have it immediately and now, and therefore we should have it. 
And you can kind of spot this, and this is really widespread in the Western world, particularly the English-speaking world. You can find theologies of glory if you just switch on some Christian TV channel, if you pick up a whole ton of books, if you listen to certain sermons, you'll find this idea kind of rotates around there because we really like it. We like this idea that everything should be really, really good for us. One of the places you spot it most is when you hear Christians talk about painful things. Painful things happen and we, we have a tendency within this theological perspective to talk about them in a very particular way that involves finding the good in the situation. So we take a situation that's bad that happens and immediately we become unbelievably committed to thinking about it in good ways, right? And we're gonna talk about it positively because this must be a way to think about this in a really good way. Now this is, is a kind of almost a strategy at some level that we do to cope with stuff happening that's out of our control. We don't like feeling out of control. We don't like feeling powerless. So we, what we do is we try and turn our perspective around on bad things. We do this when it comes to our mental health. We do it when all sorts of bad things happen to us in our lives. As I'm sure you as a kind of clever thinking group of people can realize that there are sometimes things where it might be pretty unkind to try and turn some of the bad stuff that happens into good stuff. You know, I've been in situations where I've lost people that are close to me and saw Christians who subscribe to these theologies try to make good come out of it. Well, you know, it's probably better for them and, you know, God's got a plan for it all. And, and you're railing against the, what seems like the injustice of what it is you're going for, but you're surrounded by a theology of people that are trying to put a positive spin on this. There isn't a positive spin to put on losing a child or a loved one, or a friend. There isn't a positive spin to put on some terminal illness that you might suffer from, but our theology of glory says there must be and we're figuring it out. What we're actually doing in this theology is projecting our desires about what we think the world should be like and projecting it onto God. And we project it onto God because really what we want following God to be around is kind of focused on the pursuit of our happiness and our joy. The problem is this, theologies of glory refuse to acknowledge that the world is broken, that the world has fragmented from what God intended it to be. And in that brokenness, the pain and the damage of that affects all of us. And therefore what happens is we often think within a theology like this that somehow being a Christian will protect us from all of the negative stuff that might happen in the world. And that therefore what we do is we talk about faith and we say, hey, do you know what faith is? Faith is the thing that fights against all of the bad stuff in the world. Faith becomes a shield to sort of protect us from anything else that's going on. Dan mentioned it in his beautiful song that he sang just before I got up to talk this morning. He talked about how actually, but what if faith is different from that? What if faith is not the shield that protects you from everything that's wrong in the world, but rather the resource that helps you live in the reality of the way things are? A theology of glory says that faith will basically let you live unaffected by everything that's going on in the world. The Bible teaches that faith is what helps you live in the reality of God's broken world. And you see this. So what happens is theologies of glory kind of present themselves in formulaic ways, in conditional and formulaic ways. So whenever you hear a Christian talking and they start to use this sort of formula, if you do this, then that, right? Then there should be a big red light comes on your dashboard. It starts blinking away saying, hey, we're into a theology of glory here. So you hear it all the time. God doesn't want Christians to suffer. Therefore, if you're suffering, there must be a problem with you. 
Well, I encounter this all the time. I encounter it in face-to-face conversations. I encounter it in things that are sent to me. That we have this sort of attitude that says, well, God clearly wants to heal every Christian and heal them now. The, the kind of logical process then is if you're not healed, if your brain doesn't start working perfectly again, if your body doesn't all come back together, it must be that you're not believing enough. And I kind of feel that this is why we in the church, particularly in the West, struggle so much with mental health as a conversation. Because a, a model of, of a theology of glory puts huge amount of emphasis on faith. And where does faith happen? It happens in your mind. So our great terror within a theology of glory is if your mind starts to be affected, if your mind start, doesn't start doing predictable things, then maybe your faith becomes unpredictable. And if your faith is unpredictable, then how are you gonna activate all of the stuff that God wants to have for you? And so what happens in church quite regularly is people end up living in denial about their mental health because the broader narrative of the church community says that if you have problems with your faith, then you probably have big problems with God. And so while we'll often accept the physical limitations of our bodies, I think we've kind of got ourselves to a space that we realize that sometimes bad stuff happens to our bodies and sometimes that doesn't get healed and put back together again. We seem to be really behind the curve in the same conversation about our minds. So mental health still becomes stigmatized. It becomes subtly stigmatized in a theology of glory, not by, not by telling you you're wrong, but by telling you that there's this whole area of God's healing that would just open up if you would believe him. And this idea is huge in the Western world. Theologies of glory are everywhere. Here's the problem with them. They're just not Christian. They're not biblical. They're not based and rooted in the theology of the Bible. See, the theology of glory gives you something to do. If you read a bit of the Bible, you'll realize that giving you something to do is always a problem in God's eyes. Because what happens when we have something to do? We invariably fail at it, right? It doesn't need to be much, but we struggle to make it happen. But what happens often within the kind of mindset of theology of glory is that basically, there's a conditionality. If you can do this, and then you start to hear this sort of language, that you will break through to a higher level, that you will find yourself in a kind of superior spiritual place. And it sounds very attractive to us because when you're in a dark place, you wanna be in a light place. You wanna get through to a better place and a better context. But here's the problem with that. Often it's just rooted in positive thinking. And it's also rooted in a, in a kind of biblical heresy, actually, that implies that there's better places for you to be, that somehow if you could be a better person, God would bring you into a better place. But that's never how grace works. Grace always meets us where we are. It doesn't create tiered levels of spirituality. It doesn't say if you could just be a little bit better, God would be able to help you a little bit more. In fact, Grace meets us in exactly the place we are and gives us everything of God. There's no special tricks or keys or things that you can apply that will make God offer more of himself to you. You have it all. The Bible tells us you got it all before you were even born. While we're yet sinners, Paul says, Christ died for us. So this idea that there's more for you to grasp if you would just believe some more, actually start to to root into some basic human problems that the Bible wants to subvert. In addition to this, if you are a kind of anxious person or if you're struggling with your mental health, if you're overwhelmed by depression, this sort of language impacts immensely negatively on you. 
If you're in a dark night of the soul, as the language is sometimes used to talk about people struggling with depression, and you're struggling just to have the energy and faith to get out of bed, the last thing that's gonna help you is for someone telling you, and by the way, the reason that you're not healed is because you've not got enough faith. Some depressed people will tell us that it uses all the faith they can possibly muster just to turn up at work in the morning. What kind of barbaric God would the Bible be teaching about if he just dangled slightly out of reach healing that you couldn't reach because you just couldn't summon enough of something in your mind? And what happens with this narrative is to the whole pain that you're already struggling with, shame is now added. You're not good enough. You're not worth enough. God doesn't love you clearly enough. You're not doing what you need to do enough. And then what happens is, and you hear this constantly, that a new narrative starts to be inserted into the story, a narrative of sin. And the logic becomes, well, if you're not healed and God clearly wants to heal everyone and heal them now, then there's probably something deficient with you. It's either your faith or there's some sin in your life. And I can't count how many times I've had conversations with people struggling with mental health that have started to worry about the burden of what have I done to cause this? What sin have I got going on that's messing this up? I constantly get the question from people that like, like they're overwhelmed by suicidal thoughts that might then ask, but the problem is people that kill themselves, like they can't be with God because that's the unforgivable sin, right? None of this is rooted in the Bible, by the way. This is not the language of scripture, but this theology of glory has put it upon us and therefore we live with the weight and worry about this. Fortunately, it's just not how God works. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter two and verse eight and nine, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. But just notice what he does next. But this is not from yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. See, everything we have, God has given us. All of the faith that we have, all of the grace that we have, it's poured out as a gift from God. And when Christians start to talk about it as if it's something that you can increase, as if it's something that you can make bigger so that you can get further with God, they miss a basic premise of grace and faith in the Bible that it is poured out upon us from God. Now, to be clear, Christians do believe that God will ultimately restore and resurrect everything. To be a Christian is to believe that healing is available for everybody. But it's also a realization, a mature and grown-up realization that says the world is broken and all of us are impacted by that. And becoming a Christian doesn't protect you from the brokenness of the world. It gives you a hope for something beyond the now that God is going to put everything back together again. Faith doesn't protect you from depression. Faith flows from God and works in God to help us live in the reality of our broken world. In another one of his letters that Paul writes to the Corinthians, Paul seems to have written several times to the Corinthians, and and in the letter we know as 2 Corinthians, he offers some sort of biographical insights into his own journey that is an alternate to the theology of glory. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, When Paul wrote these words, he didn't really explain what it was that was going on with him, but I think what was going on was Paul decided that in maybe a few thousand years' time, academics that studied the Bible would need something to talk about, so he was just really vague on what was going on uh, so that people would have jobs in the 20th century, so we're really, really thankful about that. But if you pick up any of the commentaries, nobody can agree on what Paul's going through, but it's not good. It's bad enough that Paul pleads to the Lord to take it away from me. 
But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, faith, like grace, has some paradox to it. When he was talking about theologies of, I'm really struggling with that word this morning. I, I'm going to get a picture of my degree on the wall just to convince those of you that are losing hope that this guy knows what he's talking about. Um, <laughs> shame and embarrassment, right? Um, when Martin Luther was talking about theologies of glory, he then turned to talk about God. And he said, what we notice about God is that God always works, and Luther phrased it this way, under his opposite. See, Luther held that God is most reliably present to us, not in our strengths or in our successes, not in the things that we like best about ourselves. Rather, God is present and working in the world exactly where it is that we're falling apart, exactly where it is that we have found the limits of ourselves, the edge of our power, not of our possibility, but of all the things we can't do, which means for Luther that God is always involved with us. He's always involved with all situations, exactly as they are, not as they should be, not as we'd like them to be, or not as they used to be, that God is with us where we need him to be. And this is what Luther called the theology of the cross. The cross, this central point of the Christian story where we see God suffering. And the New Testament is full of this imagery of the theology of the cross. That Jesus comes and says, the last shall be first. He hangs out with the sinners and the Gentiles, not the righteous people and the people of God, but all of the upside downness. This is a Christ crucified, a king on a cross showing us how he's gonna bring victory and salvation to all of us. It's the perfection of God's power through weakness. Now, to be clear about this, grace isn't saying you're fine just as you are. Of course, the long story of history is God wants to heal us and put us back together. But grace isn't saying you're fine just as you are. What grace is saying is that you are loved, that God is working, and that he is for you just as you are. And the problem with the theology of glory if you really think about it, is that it actually limits God. It flattens everything God is doing down into a sort of 2D model wherein God only has one way to act, and that's healing. It's all we'll accept from God. Either you're healing us or you're not healing us and we'll figure out the problem with ourselves as to why. And we end up with a God who's two-dimensional and massively limited. Because if he doesn't heal us now, we're not really sure what to think about him. See, but healing isn't available to everyone now. The psalmist realized that. He doesn't get protection from the darkest valley. He says in Psalm 23, instead the psalmist says, what I get is God's presence. Maybe I want protection. Maybe I want a little bubble that takes me through the darkest valley. Maybe I want the seals to come in in a helicopter and just lift me out of there so that I'm gonna be okay. I'd like a limo with bulletproof glass to take me through the darkest valley, but the psalmist knows that's not what he gets. What he does get is the promise from God that he's never, ever alone when he's there. 
Often our, our anxieties and our depressions are exacerbated by this realization that we're out of control. And we try and use our theologies to bring control back to our life. And theologies, <laughs> it's just becoming embarrassing now. Um, <laughs> you know, you get those words sometimes, it just it starts to freak you out. And just unfortunately, it's like a really important word for me. So um, that's great. Please keep me employed. Um, I really like working here. <laughs> a lot of these uh, principles of glory, um, <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they make faith sound like a way to get things under control. If I can just pray this, God will have to do that because it becomes my sort of leverage. If I say it in faith, then it's gonna happen because that's the way it works. But what about this? From the brilliant C.S. Lewis in a, great essay around prayer, he said this. There are, no doubt, passages in the New Testament which may seem at first sight to promise an invariable granting of our prayers. But that cannot be what they really mean. For in the very heart of the story, we meet a glaring instance to the contrary. In Gethsemane, the holiest of all petitioners prayed three times that a certain cup might pass from him. It did not. Lewis says, like the Bible, if you just take a few verses here and there, gives the impression that you pray for it and it'll happen. But just hold on a second. Jesus himself, on the way to the cross, prayed to the Father that this wouldn't happen. And the Father didn't stop it from happening. So when somebody comes along and says, well, it's your faith that's weak and therefore you're not getting what you prayed for, you gotta lean back on this story of Jesus and say maybe it's deeper than that. Maybe our theology is faulty. Maybe there's something that we're not quite seeing because if Jesus can pray and not be saved from the suffering, maybe there's something else we need to be thinking about. See, because the Bible teaches us through the story of Jesus and in many, many other contexts as well that God can work in our lives and in our sufferings in more ways than just healing. But if we insist that all that God can do is heal, then we're gonna miss all the other things that God might be trying to do. What if God is trying to bring around change? What if God is trying to grow you? What if all you want is healing when God's actually trying to help you see that there's some stuff you need to mature in, some stuff you need to grow through and beyond? And see, the narrative around mental health is very, very complex. Psychologists don't know where our mental health stems from. So sometimes we think, oh, maybe it's something chemical and therefore we can fix that. And maybe that can be fixed. But what about if it's something to do with your experience? What if it's events that happened in your past? What if it's loss that you've suffered? If those things have happened, it's much more complex to think about what does healing even look like? And yet Paul says when he wrote to the Romans that suffering can grow character and character can grow hope. Psychologists call this post-traumatic growth. There's complexity to your mental health. There's complexity to mine. And we sometimes have to be brave enough, I think, to say, what if our faith can sustain us in this? Because maybe God is doing something that's not as two-dimensional as simply healing or not healing, but is bringing something out through the way that God works. And what if taking this cup away from us might take away some of the purpose and reason that God has brought us to where we are right now?
Let me just throw a thought. What do I then need from God, from each other, from the church? It's a beautiful account in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It says this, now as they went on their way, because we're all on our way somewhere, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him, in her into, sorry, welcomed him into her house. Uh, I, I will learn to speak and read by next week, I promise. Uh, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? And then in the Hebrew, there's some rude words about her sister that we don't translate but we all know Martha's thinking them. Um, Tell her then to help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I've heard a lot of pastors pick on Martha in this story, but I love Martha in this story because her humanity shines through. Like, I want to be in control of this situation. It's all chaos and nobody's helping me. And it's so bad that I'm going to shout at Jesus. Like, she shouts at Jesus. Like, it's pretty big. Fortunately, we've read Lamentations. We've read Job. We know that it's okay to shout at God. But she shouts at Jesus, do you not care? In Peter's letter, chapter 5, he later says that we must cast all of our anxieties upon Jesus because he cares for us. But notice this in this story. Jesus doesn't chastise her. Instead, he points her to what her anxiety is causing her to miss. Like, Martha, you could be sat at my feet here. You could be learning from me. You could be growing with me. But your anxiety is robbing you of that for a moment. But he doesn't chastise her. Because, see, the gospel doesn't do that. The law demands that. Martha says, tell her to help me. Jesus doesn't chastise that. He says, why don't you just come and sit at my feet? He doesn't say have more faith. He doesn't say if you just believed, you'd get what's going on here, Martha. He says, just come and sit at my feet. Because there's always space at the feet of Jesus. Lauren Larkin, in an article in this uh, paragraph of a story, says, Jesus, the gospel message, enters by the event of the cross into our mess our disordered priorities, our anxiety, and draws us out and into relation with him. And in that relation with him, we are given the good portion, the only necessary thing, and we are given peace. Here's what I want you to notice. Martha knows that Jesus is safe to talk to. And so the church of Jesus should be a safe place to talk also. Perhaps we have to switch off our minds from the critiquing sort of sense that we often bring. We have to walk away from theologies of glory. We have to be prepared to live in a faith that can live with the reality of our lives. Because I think that's what the authenticity of God looks like. So here's what I want to ask from us at the end of this year's season of ghosts. Can we normalize talking about our mental health as a good thing? Can we make this a safe space to have those sort of conversations? that all of our communities and spaces and connection points in this, in this church would be places that we can have conversations about our health that aren't done in the two-dimension sort of flat earth model that says all we want to talk about is healing. And maybe there's something bigger that we talk about as God wants to lead us through something different.
See, because talking does something. Talking does something profoundly important. It actually raises us beyond our diagnoses and into our personhood. You notice that Jesus doesn't say, hey, you anxious person, sort it out. He says, Martha, Martha. Because what good conversation does is elevates us beyond just a label that says depressed or anxious or overwhelmed. And it gives us a name and a person. This is why counseling and therapy are fantastic ideas, but also why we have got to learn to talk and talk openly and honestly in safe spaces. Because talking admits that we're weak. And the theology of the cross says that admitting you're weak is where you find your strength. So let me simply pray this by way of benediction for you this morning. I wrote several different benedictions for this sermon and I couldn't better this one simple line from Paul. Perhaps you close your eyes and let's just hear these words together. May you, may you find God's grace to be sufficient for you at this point right now. And may his grace and peace be with you.